what this research with music shows is that when you have people making music together, when they're just tapping in rhythm um, or singing uh, in harmony or in unison, that you get people making more friendly pro-social decisions. So um, you you reduce the rate of people who are sort of going against the grain and and sort of making things worse for everybody. One, two, three, four. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn, and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. Today we're in Singapore. We talk with Benjamin Pelzer, Assistant Professor of the Week and We School of Communication and Information at Nanyang Technological University. Ben is trained in music theory and psychology. He works as an assistant professor and scientist with expertise in the methods of cognitive neuroscience, machine learning, computational social science, and empirical psychology. And Ben is teaching a one-of-its-kind course in the world of research on music as a sort of socio-cultural phenomenon and is using techniques from the field of communication and applying them to the field of music. We talk about how music and sounds can drive a particular scene of a film in two opposite ways using a positive or negative balance soundtrack and that music is almost uniquely powerful in its deeply emotional impact and the ability to evoke complex or more profound lasting emotions. Ben shares with us that there are some universal features of music like low tones are connected with sinister or aggressive emotions that are part of the evolution when big animals were a severe threat. And he conveys insights from a little survey he did with the multicultural students of his music course for the Power of Music Thinking podcast about how they listen to music in the context of Asia. In his music course, Ben also reflects with his students questions like, if you were alive, thousand years ago, what role would music have played in your life? And the realization that for people outside of wealth and royalty, it would be folk instruments or just the human voice. So if you wanted to hear music, you would make it yourself or go to a performance by someone else. This is something that especially younger people don't think about, because they are so used to listening to almost any song you could want. And that's why the current moment is such an outlier in human history. For some themes we talk about, I have put links in the show notes. And if you have a look at them, please consider to subscribe, make a comment and give us a rating. This will help us a lot to get the show going. And good to know we had some connection issues, so please excuse the little dropouts near the end. All right, let's start. Good afternoon, Ben. Welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. 
Hi, Christoph. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation and uh, to sharing some things that are hopefully interesting to your listeners. Sure, we will. Um, I, I know. Ben, what was your first sonic experience or album or live performance that had an impact on you? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I really love it. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and not give just one. Um, I grew up hearing uh, the music, mostly my dad's music, um, a lot of uh, progressive rock from sort of the 70s, as well as uh, shading into heavy metal. Um, one experience that uh, I had in high school that started to send me in a different direction was my uh, one of my high school band directors um, played in the symphony orchestra in my hometown. And uh, he was involved in a performance and he suggested that some of us um, attend and it was uh, Messian's Taranga Lila. Um, yeah, which is just, it, it completely blew my mind and, and redefined what music could be. So Olivier Turangalila, one one of his most famous pieces with a very interesting instrument. Yeah, definitely the um Ond Martino. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This um very sort of sci-fi sounding ah, cool. uh yeah, instrument. And then one one other experience that um I'll sneak in just because it's uh it has a connection to you is um it's probably not the very first time, but it's the very first time that I can remember. Uh, being um, sort of almost, I mean, spiritual might not be the right word, but being really, really moved by music uh, was um, there's a series of organ concerts uh, in Stevenskerk in Nine mm. um, when I was there. And uh, those concerts and playing around with, um, you know, just moving around and experiencing the different overtones and just the, the really immersing myself in that sonic experience was yeah just another um another musical experience that i can definitely call easily to mind wow nice so we have to to tell the people you've studied a half a year in nijmegen where i live and where we, uh, i now record uh, the podcast but you're at the moment in singapore <laughs> yes that's right yeah i'm at the uh, nanyang technological university uh, in singapore so ben can you tell us a little bit more about you who are you what do you do for a living Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm an assistant professor of communication neuroscience at NTU. Um, so I'm in the School of Communication here. Um, my background is not in communication at all. Uh, it's actually in psychology as well as in music theory. So during my bachelor's studies, I did a dual degree in music theory and psychology. And uh, for various reasons, I made the decision as I went forward in academia to focus on the psychology side of that instead of the music side of that, uh, mostly with an eye towards sort of future employability and how large the, the research field was in each of those respective domains. So during, during my graduate studies, um, I focused on cognitive neuroscience. Um, and during that time, I was really interested in data analysis, machine learning, various advanced techniques. And For me, what's interesting is I actually can see how that links to my interest in music theory. I mean, it's basically music theory is sort of one way of thinking about it is trying to quantify music, to turn music into numbers, trying to understand 
the the inner details of the musical experience. Um, I was also thinking uh, during my bachelor's studies as well, uh, a lot about music cognition. So trying to relate different properties of music to the impacts that those have on listeners. <clears throat> Fast forward uh, to the present day. Um, and uh, as I said, I'm doing communication neuroscience. And my research uh, primarily combines different techniques uh, drawn from machine learning, from cognitive neuroscience, and from media psychology. And I focus on the dynamics in the brain while people are consuming or engaging with media. So while you're watching mm -hmm. a film, for instance, or potentially while you're listening to a piece of music. Um, and within that niche, um, I also think a lot about sort of individual differences and audience segmentation. Um, so that's, uh, that's a little bit about what I do, but what um, I think is most relevant to um, what you're doing is that uh, during my um, time as a professor, I was given the opportunity to propose a new course. And it's uh, more or less uh, one of its kind in the world, um, where I'm looking at uh, and presenting to the students research on music as a sort of sociocultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And the unique angle is that I'm uh, either drawing on theories from the field of communication or just borrowing sort of techniques or ways of thinking from the field of communication and applying those to music. Wow. That's quite a lot. <laughs> mm, yeah. and, and the link was um, that you reacted on the episode with Glenn McDonald from Spotify. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah, uh, exactly. so if, if people have heard that episode, so they are already let's say, warned in that way that they can expect much more uh, or much more or a different take on what uh, I talked with the, with Glenn a few, a few weeks ago. So that's a, a very nice, very nice link. Um, okay, let's let, let's cycle back to, to um, what, what do you mean by quantify music? Um, and is it the music that you quantify or the listening? So actually doing the link with the episode with Glenn, he's all about listening data and behavior data. So mm. what's, what does your quantify music mean? Right. So, I mean, that's a really good question. There's uh, two ways of approaching it. Um, one is just to think about the artifact in isolation And uh, I think that that's the approach that probably most music theorists would say that they take. So just taking the, the score, for instance, and doing various sorts of analyses to understand what um, techniques the composer was using and uh, the sort of the apotheosis, um, the end point of this might be uh, analyzing 12-tone music where they're using very rigorous rules and there are sets and combinatorics right. and it's very, very um, sort of math-inspired. I, I would and, I would merely say this is a little bit like musicology. That's what I studied years ago <laughs> to dive right. into one of the pieces, try to understand um, what it is and, 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 and what the composer, what the composer did. And also interesting that it differs very much from different kinds of compositions. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, even even within that sort of approach, just focusing on the artifact, there's sort of a quantitative approach or a qualitative approach just in terms of 
yeah, the background, the training of the the music theorist. Um, but you're absolutely right that another way of thinking about and quantifying music is, and in some sense, it's because music is designed to be heard by people. Um, the approach of understanding music through the lens of the impacts that it has on the listeners um, is so that's more uh, I think that that's more music psychology um, or cognitive musicology there's different terms for it Um, but yeah that's it's the other side of the coin and it's uh, I mean these are basically my two those were my two interests was the, the more mathematical side of what's happening in the music on its own, as well as trying to understand the impact that it had on the listeners. Imagine that when you're a composer <laughs> and you, you're busy bringing everything, all your ideas into a composition, and then it depends if you just write a score and you need an orchestra or someone else to play it, or you're in a studio composer and you can manipulate everything so as you want it. And I, I wonder if they think about that impact very much. So maybe in pop music, I can imagine because in, in popular music, a producer is always market-driven um, or yeah, if if they're a professional uh, producer, they're always market driven because they the investment they do in the studio they want to want to, to have it back. Compared to if if you allow take the composition that you just mentioned, Messiaen, it was the second part of the of the 20th century, and he he composed with a with a new instrument, an electronic instrument, an Aunt Martineau. So if people know what a theremin is, the sound is a little bit comparable, but it's played in a totally different way. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, composition. And talking about impact, Messier was a, a Catholic. And everything that he did and that he was doing was th- that impact was clear. So I like very much these how, how they how they combined. And are you researching this? So so what w- would be in a subject of your research to 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 show these two sides, the the artifact one and the impact one? Yeah. So um, my research is. Uh, not primarily on music. So there is music in um, some of the stimuli that I, that I use. So uh, I do primarily brain imaging and examples of the sorts of studies that I run uh, would be that I have people watch, um, for example, clips from films um, while their brain activity is being recorded. And uh, I'm using that to try to understand something about essentially the relationship between the properties of the films and their brain activity. Um, I do similar research using uh, advertising. Um, So having people watch uh, short ads um, while the brain activity is being scanned and using that to uh, essentially try to predict the effectiveness um, of the ads. So Mm -hmm. some of those film clips, some of those ads will have music, but um, it's, at this point, it's something that I take note of and can sort of do analyses just to see whether the presence of music or not has uh, an impact. Um, but I'm not doing 
sort of uh, analyses of different musical cues in terms of yeah the the impact it has in the the processes that I'm studying. Is there a different? Is there a difference um, when people watch, let's say, an ad without music, or maybe maybe also music is not the the only thing without sound, <laughs> and um, is it an extra effect or is it a, a stronger effect? Because sometimes people say that branding with music is much more stronger than just a, a visual. Is this is this right? Yeah, it's definitely right. So I don't. Um from my research, I don't have sort of enough evidence to speak to that, but I know I'm familiar enough with the the evidence from um, other researchers. And uh, it's definitely the case that um, you get very, very different effects if people are watching a, a clip. And I mean, you can do this if, if you spend a few minutes on YouTube, you can find examples of clips. I know there's one, for instance, uh, from the, the um, 90s uh, Jurassic Park um where you can watch the scene with or without music and just in terms of the emotional experience in terms of um even how you perceive the scene in terms of the the things that you notice on the screen or um yeah the the actors expressions things like that um are very heavily influenced by whether there's music or not and there are a lot of different types of effects um generally speaking um, a lot of the research tends to focus on the emotional effects because it's sort of the most obvious and also in some sense, the most quantifiable. A lot of the rest is, is, you know, gets much more into sort of this qualia, this, this hard to pin down subjective experience. Um, whereas psychologists are reasonably well equipped to, to study emotion. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely the case that um, you can take a, an ambiguous or a neutral scene, for instance, and completely drive people to perceive it, uh, essentially in, in completely opposite ways, um, just by using either sort of positively coded or uh, positively valenced, negatively valenced, uh, soundtrack, and you'll get exactly opposite interpretations of the same scene. Um, and of course, when you have some sort of emotion that's inherent in the scene, um, then you tend to get these sort of super additive effects where the music um, accentuates it even further. So, so this means if people listen now to us from, let's say, more from a business perspective and they have a, a marketing budget <laughs> to spend, would you say uh, think, think more about the, the audio part of your communication? Is that what you say? Yeah, absolutely. I can't speak. Um, I don't have enough background in sort of visual design to be able to to tease apart the the relative influence of the audio component, the sound component uh, versus the visual component. Um, but there's yeah, just a substantial amount of evidence demonstrating that um, music is almost uniquely powerful in terms of its ability to evoke uh, emotions, especially sort of complex or deeper or longer lasting emotions. Um, there's, you know, you can use uh, visual imagery and there's, there's sort of a classic um, set of images, for instance, that's used in a lot of psychological studies uh, where you'll have incredibly positively valenced pictures, uh, puppies and 
uh, things of that nature, and then very negatively valence pictures from, uh, for instance, uh, you know, places where there are wars or things like that. Um, and those obviously evoke strong emotions, but the the yeah the ability of music to um, to really evoke these sort of deeper and longer lasting uh, emotions is is quite profound. Hmm. I just uh, think about in one of the early episodes, I spoke with uh, Steve Keller and he's the audio alchemist. <laughs> um, and uh, he, um, when I spoke with him, he watched or listened to a lot of um, in, in COVID time to all these advertisement uh, to tell people what they should do during COVID. And what I found so interesting is that he said, but all the voices were white. Meaning, so if you want to reach a different kind of people and you just do it from a certain perspective, from a language or even the sound or the quality, um, think about think about how this will come over to people that should follow or should understand what they should do. So so I, I found this very, very, very interesting uh, thing. So this goes a little bit in that that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, it's uh it's very important and this is one thing that um i try to focus on in uh especially in, in teaching my class um being uh an american myself um but obviously in southeast asia um i sort of have an obligation to um, step outside of that very narrow western focused uh background and that's at least um i think most uh People who are being trained, for instance, in music theory or music history, it's primarily focused on that Western perspective. Um, but of course, uh, yeah, different listeners coming from different cultures will receive music in different ways. There are some universals, um, like there are uh, features of music that uh, scholars have traced back to, for instance, evolutionary origins, um, thinking about the ways that um, the musical cues, uh, echo vocal cues, for example. So, uh, this is why this sometimes, well, so like, um, if you have, uh, uh, a low pitch, for example, um, that is typically used to denote something that's sort of sinister or aggressive or, mm -hmm. um, things of that nature, loud sounds as well, or aggressive and thinking in sort of an evolutionary psychological, um, way you can understand that because uh deep sounds come from large i mean it, it, thinking back to when the only sounds you would hear were essentially uh vocal sounds right animals mm -hmm. vocalizing humans vocalizing um so the, the larger an animal the deeper the sound and also the more danger that animal posed so there are some uh universals like that where people across all cultures will tend to have some basic reactions to certain musical cues that are in common. Um, but the, I would say that the differences between the musics of different cultures um, vastly outweigh the commonalities. Um, so you definitely can't presume that listeners from different, I mean, even within, you know, a, a single country um, coming from, you know, different cultural backgrounds um, could nonetheless have uh, quite different perceptions of, yeah, the same piece of music. Right. So we have the universals and maybe the individuals. So the universal are what you just said, like a, a low sound, something like from, Ooh, what's going on? What is this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's profound. It could be big. 
and uh, a bird a bird sound for example um a lot of people say if you hear birds so you know it feels like okay everything is okay and then when suddenly the bird sounds stop it's like so even the silence can be very very profound mm -hmm. um, you you mentioned your course what what, what kind of course is, uh, is it and can you can you tell us a little bit more about it yeah sure so uh it's um a general education course for undergrads, which means that uh, it's students who are doing their bachelors from all across the university. So I have, uh, I mean, most of my students aren't coming from the School of Communication, but instead they're engineers and physicists and mathematicians and sociologists. So all a, a huge mix um, from the humanities, from engineering, from the hard sciences. And so your music um, course unites the people so that's also i think very charming <laughs> to bring everyone together with and then and then teach them about music so with everybody with a different perspective nice yeah exactly i mean that's that's something that i uh really try to emphasize as i'm as i'm um putting together activities for instance i have group activities and uh, i construct the groups so that we have a mix of students from the social sciences, hard sciences, uh, humanities, so that they sort of get exposed to people with different perspectives. And um, I'm assuming, I mean, I'm assuming that no one in the class uh, has a strong dislike of music, but I don't know the degree to which the people in the, in the class, uh, you know, are musicians themselves or relate strongly to music, or there's certainly a lot of them where the course just fit their schedule or, you know, they, they took it for idiosyncratic reasons. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that's a lot of fun to, um, because in academia, we can get into our silos and, you know, by the time you're working as a professor, uh, you tend to be working within a niche of a niche, um, hyper-specialized and you can lose sight of, um, big picture, you know, Uh, principles that are really interesting. So um, it's, it's a lot of fun to um, have these students from diverse backgrounds and get to think about, I mean, first of all, get to think about music that I haven't in a way that I haven't thought about for probably 10 years um, or longer mm -hmm. since I was doing my own undergraduate work. Um, but also to think about my, my, uh, my current field of communication and just really, you know, what are the um, important principles or concepts that, you know, I can, where I can bring these two topics together in a way that um, is informative and interesting to, to these people from so many different kinds of backgrounds. You get back to, yeah, to the very early beginnings of music. Can you tell us a little bit more how this works for, because I, I imagine that when, when we talk with music and I would say, especially with younger people, but that's an assumption, um, that they never think about where music comes from and that people in 40,000 years ago tried to make a flute from a bone. How, how far are you going and how how does this, and what's the impact on your students if you share it with them? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I do, I mean, the, the course as a whole is actually also called How Music Speaks. Um just because it was sort of a pithy way of getting across that idea of combining communication and music. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, the, the, I cover a few different sort of big picture topics of the intersection between communication and music. Um, 
But one of the things that I do very early on in the semester is what you just alluded to. Um, I mean, first, I just have the students sort of think about what is music um, and just, you know, talk about uh, examples of things where people might disagree, whether it constitutes music or not, um, different times, types of, you know, uh, noise, music, basically things like that. Mm. John Cage, of course. Um, but yeah, the one of the other things that I do in those first couple of weeks um, is go through uh, the history of music going back 40 or, I mean, if you, if you include proto music, some scholars talk about going back 400,000 years ago. Um, but music as we would understand it today, uh, it, yeah, generally, generally we can talk pretty safely about 40,000 years ago. And because the sort of the, um, the conceit of the course is this focus on music in a more all encompassing sense. So, so not just the notes, not just the recordings, but the, yeah, the experience of music, again, sort of the socio-cultural phenomenon of music. Um, that's, that's really helpful, I think, to um, walk students through and think, have them think about, you know, if you were alive 2000 years ago, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, just what, what role would music have played in your life? And of course, for most of the history of music, for most people, you know, outside of the, the very wealthy or, or people who were royalty, things like that, um, it was maybe some folk instruments, but for the most part, it was just the, the human voice. Um, so if you wanted to hear music, you would make it yourself. Um, and of course, up until the advent of recording, uh, you either had to make it yourself or go see it performed by someone else. Um, so I think that that's, uh, like you said, that's just, a something that most, especially younger people, um, don't tend to think about. I mean, we're so yeah. used to being able to listen to pretty much any song that we can want on yeah. demand. I mean, everybody has, you know, Spotify and uh, things like that these days. Um, but to realize that this is uh, the the current moment is such an outlier is so atypical relative to the vast majority of human history that, um, I mean, as a music lover, I'm sure you'll agree, it's it's a very exciting time to to be alive, to to have such access to such a broad array of music on demand, um, but it's very much not not the norm for most of human history. Absolutely. I like that question very much. And I think it's uh, also, so the listener that now listens to all of us and all the scientific uh, things that we, <laughs> that we talk about, but it's a very profound question. What if, or imagine 50 years, 100 years, or maybe, maybe just go back um, how your let's say your parent or your grandfather, when they had your age, so we keep it very open <laughs> and think about how they, what did they hear? Maybe just to start with hearing and what and how were they listening to? I think that's a very, a very profound question. And maybe if people, because we, we have pictures since the last, what is it? 150 years also personal pictures, they can see, oh, what is this? Oh, then you could imagine how it would sound. Um, but we don't have a sound from that time. I think the, the, one of the earliest recording 
is or so that people record in their in their family that's maybe just maybe just 70 years ago so it also depends on could you afford um, recording equi equipment so um but but that's an, a very very nice thing and in our pre-talk i think you had the idea that we also could ask the students uh, some questions and you made a, a little a survey about it can you talk about uh, about that yeah sure i mean um just in uh, as you said as we were discussing um sort of opportunities um obviously one of the uh, interesting opportunities for um given my situation is uh that i'm located here in a part of your world that uh may not be too familiar to um, a lot of your listeners. Um, so obviously Singapore is, uh, quite an international, um, country. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners may have visited. Um, but nonetheless, to sort of, it, it is quite distinct, um, from, uh, from a lot of European countries from the U S. Um, so just, uh, yeah, thought it would be interesting to find out what, how my students, uh, sort of interact with music, um, the role that it plays in their lives. Um, and unsurprisingly, I mean, one of the uh, themes of the last, I mean, the sort of this, this broad uh, overview of music history is um, this trend towards homogenization, the trend towards uh, Western influence. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the students in my um, class uh, who are mostly um, Singaporeans, there are some exchange students who are coming from, uh, from Europe, from the U S mm -hmm. um, but, but it's mostly Singaporeans, but they use music for essentially the same purposes and through essentially the same channels as you would get, uh, if you ask this question in the U S if you asked it in um, Europe. So they, they report using the music, um, for relaxation, to set an ambiance, um, to manage their. Uh, their mood or emotional state, um, just to pass the time while they're commuting. Um, and they're listening through uh, TikTok, through YouTube, through Spotify, occasionally on the radio, you know, if, if they're in the taxi or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, just listening while they're exercising, for instance, is another um, common association. So I think there's, uh, from that side, uh, yeah, I would say that these students are pretty indistinguishable from uh, the students, um, at least in the contexts I'm familiar with uh, mm. in Europe and the U.S. Um, one other thing that's uh, not exactly unique, um, but that, that certainly stands out about Singapore is um, that it's very multicultural. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are a lot of different cultures that sort of combined um, as uh, Singapore um, became an independent state. And uh, that means that there's a lot of different musical traditions. And um, for the older generation, um, it's very clear that uh, this more traditional music is uh, plays a larger role. So it's, it's very common um, going to malls or in, uh, in taxis or things like that, if if you have, uh, for instance, an, an older um, 
or if you encounter somebody um, who's uh, ethnic Chinese and uh, from the older generation, um, it's not at all uncommon for them to be playing to to hear um, than traditional Chinese music. Mm -hmm. um, but for these students, um, yeah. again, like I think most young people around the world, they don't have a strong and they also don't have um, sort of much exposure or experience with the the musics of the other cultures. So they might have some familiarity with the traditional music of their own culture, although most of them aren't too interested in it. All right. Um, but yeah, from other cultures, it's it's almost um, invisible. But this means the traditional or the older cultures music will go away in some way because the listeners don't listen anymore. And if we don't record it, um, then it will be really not be um, available. And um, one of my questions in, in, in that regard was um, in, in, in my book, I'm talking about different positions of leadership. And um, I mention uh, and, and, and just mention, let's say, four, four different uh, um, directions. And one direction would be more the classical music where, let's say, like, uh, Olivier, like a composer like Olivier Messiaen has a fantastic idea and he writes everything down in a score and he needs specialists to to play to play this so the the conductor would be really dive into this system and uh, the listening would be something that you might have never heard before and maybe later also uh, um, would be compared to everything that you hear later is so different on the other hand there would be a producer and that's when we talk about popular music it's market driven and it's about like okay we have an investment to go into the studio and to work on so we we want that money back in some way and we do what people like or will like and another direction would be improvisation just to yeah just to make music on the on the, on yeah, on the fly and 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 act and interact so I, i would say there's maybe the most direct communication on stage for example so that is um that is evolving so because you could you could also compose that dialogue in 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 the other music but improvisation is could it could go everywhere and then i have one corner that i i call the the, the guru or the folk music traditional or um uh, all these musics that we that might go away but have a very profound also different often also ritual uh function and My, my question always is, if, if I show this or talk about this different direction, do people really understand what I mean? Do, or do they have a, a reference to music where they say, oh, hang on. Oh, that's interesting. Or like uh, talking about gamelan music from, from uh, Bali or Java that is very played in a special way, also by an orchestra, but, uh, but from a different orchestra. And as far as I know, there oh, there are also scores, but totally different scores. So what's your take on this? So is it is it going away? Shall we preserve it? Is there any use to, to show it or to, to let them hear what it is? Right. I think um, it's going to it's going to differ a lot from culture to culture, um, just in terms of sort of the um, the importance that the members of a culture, for instance, put on tradition. Uh, some cultures, you know, that's um, sort of elevating tradition or, or um, 
having a high regard for tradition is is a central part of the culture itself. Um, in other cultures, that's just not you know not sort of a central theme. And so, it, definitely in cultures where there is a focus on tradition, I think those musics have a better chance of being uh, preserved. Um, <clears throat> it, it's hard to know. Um, I don't. I'm not familiar with any research on this. Um, obviously, young people tend to uh, be less interested in tradition. I think we can we can pretty safely say um, across a lot of cultures. And then as they get older, they they get more interested in tradition. So it may be that um, you know the, this older generation that I'm you know that we can hear uh, playing traditional Chinese music uh, around Singapore. Maybe when they were youths, they also had no interest in that, and you know they only discovered that interest as they were as they got older. Two other things come to mind. Um, one is uh, even in a country like Japan, um, which tends to, uh, I think, have more of a focus on um, sort of preserving tradition. The government was actually so concerned. I think this was in the '90s about just what you were talking about, the loss of uh, traditional music, in particular folk song, that they mm-hmm. undertook a, a large sort of centralized project to preserve um, as much folk music as they could. Um, so even even though that's a culture that we might think of as being more oriented towards tradition, um, nonetheless, the government uh, saw uh, reasons for concern. One other sort of angle on this is that you know, different actors can uh, recognize the the power of tradition. I mean, it, tradition sort of means, you know, it's this sort of set of symbols um, that that carries uh, a, a certain meaning to members of a, of a culture. And so, um, yeah, for instance, uh, governments will sometimes go through the process of uh, what scholars uh, occasionally talk about is inventing tradition. So they will create new music that's in the style of traditional music, which I think gets into a gray area in terms of whether that's actually preserving the tradition or if it's just um, sort of taking advantage of, uh, of, you know, of, of, yeah, that association um, to achieve their own particular aims. Yeah. Um, Hmm, I don't think that we'll lose you know, worldwide, I'm sure that traditional musics will survive. It's just a question of diversity, just like with languages, for for instance, we know that the number of languages is um, decreasing, that the same thing is happening with musics. On the other hand, I think when people hear music for the first time, it's always new for them in some way. So there's always a chance to bring, to bring something that was very, let's say, old, traditional, and let them hear something. And I think maybe it will work when it's live music, maybe mm. more, but that's an assumption from my side, instead of just uh, in the Spotify playlist, if there's something traditional in between, maybe they would skip, but that's also, also an assumption. <laughs> you also talk about music as a tool. And that's something what, what, what I think it's very interesting because music thinking is something where I say, okay, it's not about the music or not just about the music. There's much more behind the music that you could use in some way or even use in the way that you, if there are musical principles and you make them simple enough so that you can use them in a different context. So what about your music as a tool? 
thinking. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in the course on topics that basically fall under this umbrella. Um, so I talk a little bit about sort of explicitly communicating with music. For instance, there are studies showing that music can carry semantic meaning, that you can actually listen to a musical excerpt and understand it in the same way that you understand language. Um, but that's relatively rare. Um, most of the uh, sort of ways that you can use music as a tool, a lot of it has to do with emotion. Um, and I break, I break things down in terms of whether you, whether the listener has a choice in the matter, essentially, uh, in what they're listening to. I could point. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of research um, out of the framework. It's called uses and gratifications. It's a communication theory. It's basically about how you use media. And I include music in that to achieve particular goals. Like if you're feeling bored, you might sit down to watch uh, you know, an engaging movie. Uh, if you're feeling sad, you might try to listen to happy music to cheer you up, or you might sort of paradoxically listen to sad music in order to kind of get the emotions out and process them when the listener has agency. Um, but of course, there are a lot of examples of music being used, uh, not exactly against the listener's will, but where it's not, you know, the the listener isn't choosing to hear the music. So um, music in film, music and advertising, even things mm. like music uh, in stores or Muzak, uh, workplace music. Yeah, that's what you mean uh, with um, used by listeners. So I think the example would be if I'm sad, I might like to hear um, the, pa uh, pa the, the, the passion from uh, Bach, for example, just to to make it even bigger and and get it out and 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 really feel th that moment and maybe later then I uh, want to uh, listen to uh, to happy music this would be used by listeners and used on listeners would be with the same knowledge we try to yeah, maybe the the word manipulation also comes around the corner we tried to 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 use music on listeners to for a certain effect I mean, practitioners have to be really careful with this, though, because listeners are savvy, first of all. Um, so if you are too obvious, uh, listeners don't like feeling like they are being manipulated. Um, and uh, so if yeah, if your if your music is too obvious, um, then listeners will catch on to that. And, you know, you'll have uh, sort of a, a boomerang effect. Um, there are also just sort of quirky results for instance if you set uh happy lyrics to happy music you get less happiness if you have the happy lyrics with just neutral music whereas with sad music and sad lyrics you the sadness sort of compounds so um, that's, it's not completely straight fat. you use the type of music to cause the emotional response that you want. There's, there's interactions between what else is happening. So um, these days, the more sophisticated practitioners, um, you can almost think of it as a sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the tone painting uh, or, or thinking in terms of, you know, just, just colors. Um, mm. So not, not being um, too over the head, Uh, on the listener in terms of um, 
yeah, the, the emotion that you're trying to evoke, but the, the more sophisticated uses um, do things like they support a narrative, for example. Okay. So you have a narrative on the screen and you, you use the music in some way to, um, to synergize with yeah. the narrative that's happening on the screen. To make it stronger so that it's still the same. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a very important, important thing. And it just, it just crosses my mind that when you go to Wagner Opera, where he works with a lot of these little melodies, uh, these um, leitmotif, he's, he's calling them. So there's mm -hmm. like the idea, there's someone getting on the stage and you hear a certain theme in the orchestra And the listener who really understand that whole system and whole uh, theme, they would say, "Oh, he he will die at the end of the <laughs> at, the, at the end of the, uh, the the hour." So because there's some extra information, so that's maybe very the super super sophisticated part. Um, but, but I like that very much. So the the idea to um, it's not just using music. So. Um, as a disclaimer to 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 all the marketing managers that uh, that that are out there, and just yeah, just try to, uh, do happy music, and people will will buy our product. It's much it's much more uh, sophisticated, and uh, and it's not just something that you just do. And maybe just uh, it should be, well, but that's my my take on it. Should connect much more with your with your purpose, and that it uh, make that it makes the product perfect instead of just selling selling your idea. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so much effort in in terms of uh, you know uh, sound branding, for instance, and how how you get synergies between the visual design and the acoustic design and every element you know of the um, sort of the overall campaign being um, uh, fitting together nicely, you know, being yeah. in harmony. And also by sound branding, you have to understand that it should be very much on brand. So very much you, very much connected with your purpose and who you are. On the other hand, it will be heard in a in a context that is different with the listeners that might be totally different to you and might have a, yeah, a weaker effect or, or a different effect. Yeah, it's, you know, so much of it is about um, just shading around the edges, right? Just just causing subtle effects or trying to present the same information through different channels. You have different, you know, different different customers. Um, some work very visually, some are more, you know, in the auditory domain. And so if you can tell the same basic story through different channels, you're reaching more people. Um, obviously, you're always going to have people who come from a different culture, who listen to a different you know different genres of music things like that you can't um sort of get get everyone um but there are some um clear themes that, that come from research and also that just come from you know practitioners doing this for a long time and being successful there are things that that you can do to reach a wide audience i would say Thank you, Ben. That's quite um, quite a lot of information, quite a lot of insights. Is there something that we didn't touch? Something that you would like to to share? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's one um, one other thing that I think could be interesting to uh, to your listeners um, uh, from from my course, which is about the social effects of music. Um, so, uh, scholars who um, think about where did music come from? Why why does so much of humanity today engage in this ritual um 
they come up with different explanations. And one of the explanations is um, actually with reference to the uh, social effects of music. Yeah, there, there are a few different sort of ways of thinking about this. One is um, a scholar named Christopher Small, and he talks about musicking. So this is oh, yeah. the, the act of basically engaging in music as a ritual. It doesn't mean that you have to do it ritualistically, but just essentially anytime there is music, he thinks of it as being uh, a ritual. And this can be performing music, it can be listening to music, but he even talks about you know, the, the stage hand who moves the piano onto the stage is involved, uh, is, is engaging in musicking. Absolutely. And just to, to add, I like this very much because that's what I mean with uh, music thinking. It's not mm -hmm. about music. It's about everything that makes this music possible. And uh, I, I, I like that one with the, the one who's moving the piano to on stage. It also does a contribution to that music. And, and uh, I also think about how do you scale music so it always it's um, it's not the orchestra has to get bigger and bigger and bigger like in a in a Mahler eight where you have a thousand uh, people playing no maybe you should think like a festival with different musics so i like that uh, like that idea very much that uh, it's uh, not just about the music but everything that's involved in it so this was one sorry to interrupt <laughs> yeah yeah no that's fine um yeah so uh One of the things that um, uh, Christopher Small focuses on in talking about musicking is he focuses on the idea that it allows people to experience different kinds of relationships. So relationships uh, between the people involved in the experience and the physical setting, um, between the different participants in the musical experience, and between the sounds themselves. So it's all about different types of relationships, including social relationships. Mm -hmm. um, The other line, uh, basically, of research that's really interesting uh, and that I think could be interesting to your listeners is um, going back to this idea that uh, music arose because it has uh, effects on how we relate to other people. There's a lot of research showing that if you um, make music with other people, if you just even just tapping in rhythm or singing uh, in harmony or in unison uh, with other people, it leads to, you can think of this as coordination. It can be physical coordination or just sound coordination, but this leads to um, cooperation and collaboration. So there are a lot of different studies. If you set people up in um, different, if you give them sort of psychological tasks, uh, things like some of your listeners may know the prisoner's dilemma, basically it's a situation where you can make different choices and there are some sort of pro-social friendly choices and some anti-social not so friendly choices. And uh, if you um, basically, if you, if one person is being anti-social, then everyone needs to be anti-social to sort of get the, the to, to avoid the worst outcome essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but what this research with music shows is that when you have people making music together, when they're just tapping in rhythm, um, or singing uh, in harmony or in unison, that you get people making more friendly pro-social decisions. So um, you you reduce the rate of people who are sort of going against the grain and and sort of making things worse for everybody. Um, so that's uh, there's a lot of uh, research supporting this idea that um, either making music together or listening to music together. Um, 
yeah, brings people together. So yeah, what I was saying is that uh, it um, it it doesn't just sort of bring people together in a physical space, but it actually does something to uh, to people's social brains that makes them act as a single entity. Uh, so um, that that makes them engage with one another um, on a deeper level socially. I also do this sometimes in in the workshops to let them engage in in a in a group improvisation, and uh, and and that's even that's I also feel it's very strong because it comes from them from their side they bring their contribute so literally they learn how to co-create how to work together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, thank you very much for for sharing this with us. And yeah, hope to hear hear more from from everything that you're that you're that you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Christoph. Um, yeah, it was a, an interesting conversation. Um, and yeah, I look forward to seeing uh, what else you get up to. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills, and I feel honored about this. It is my mission to find, create, and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating, or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog, and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com.